0: Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Today's topic is Deemed Export Regulations. With me on the panel today, I have two amazing, brilliant, smart lawyers who are going to make this topic look manageable and understandable. We have with us, for the first time ever, an outside lawyer from a private law firm, Attorney Adonika Wada, who is a partner with a very prestigious law firm based in San Francisco, California. And we will make her information available to those who need that information as well. And at the end, I think, Adonica, you're gonna give them your contact information if needed. Absolutely. Um, basically, Adonica's firm specializes in import, export, uh, regulations, and trade. Ms. Vada works with clients in enforcement matters with various government agencies and she helps to develop business strategies to minimize risk and comply with import and export regulations. Many of you do not need an introduction to attorney Aaron Finkelstein, but uh, Aaron has been with the Murthy Law Firm for going on 11-plus years. He's the managing attorney of the firm, uh, focuses very heavily on green card-related matters, but has certainly very, very high level of knowledge on all immigration and employment-based issues. Erin um, and Adonika are going to discuss a lot of the issues, and I'm certainly going to act as the moderator for today's teleconference. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go over, as I always do, uh, with a series of questions and answers. And because we believe this topic is so important, we believe we may actually need to break this up into two sessions, one for this month, The first Wednesday of February and one again uh, second half hour or so for the first Wednesday in March um, because we believe that's when the I-129 form will actually become implemented because it's going to start to be enforced and implemented from February 20th of 2011. Okay so the issue really is that many of you as companies as H-1B employers are scratching your head and saying why do I really care what this Form I-129 Part 6 says? It requires that the petitioner must review the EAR, or Export Administration Regulation, and ITAR, which is the International Traffic and Arms Regulation. But why do I care about those? Because I'm not in the business of importing or exporting anything. Why should I apply for an export or import license? Or why do I even need to, to do anything or bother with this whole thing? It seems so ridiculous when all I'm doing is maybe an IT technology company, an insurance company, you know, manufacturing plant, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, so let's just go back and understand. Why do we need this? There's a whole concept in immigration law and actually in export control regulations, the concept of what's called a deemed export. What is a deemed export? And any export of technology or source code is deemed to have taken place when either one of the source code or the technology is released to a foreign national who is within the United States. Therefore, an export in the traditional sense of a physical export out of the US is not required. Rather, what the government says is that it ends up becoming a deemed export where there is an export or transfer that takes place in the United States And this release amounts to providing access to a data stored or shared on network drives with the foreign national. The release of information is deemed to be an export to the foreign national's home country. And therefore, that would require a U.S. government export license or other approval. Obviously, a failure to comply with these export regulations, such as getting this export license, and transmitting electronic export information can expose you and your company to civil and criminal fines. And so we get back, so then the whole issue is, then who, who on earth is a foreign national? Well, as all of us know, a foreign national is a person who is not a U.S. citizen or a U.S. permanent resident or green card holder. The, there are a couple other minor exceptions for asylees and refugees um, et cetera, but let's not get into that. Basically, it's a person who's not a U.S. citizen or not a permanent resident. The EAR and ITAR regulations require this form and the checkoff. When you check this off on the issue of technology and technical data, it only applies to H1B, H1B1, L1s, and O1s alone. Not to all other foreign nationals, even though a lot of the other export regulations do apply to all other foreign nationals. But this H-1 form, part 6, primarily focuses apparently on these four. So let's go on to you, Aaron, and say, I mean, do, do we care what the nationality of the foreign worker is? Does it matter at all? Are there some countries that are subject to stricter restrictions? And, you know, if it's an export control, is it equal for everybody?
1: Absolutely. Nationality does matter. And yes, some countries have more restrictions, which means that foreign nationals of those countries are also subject to the same restrictions for deemed export purposes when those foreign nationals are in the United States. Those with the highest controls are those countries that are viewed as T4, or terrorist supporting states, such as uh, Cuba, Iran, Sudan, and Syria. There are there's another layer, a little bit less, called countries of concern, which includes former Soviet uh, republics, Russia, Ukraine, uh, China, and Israel. And then we have what are considered friendly countries, which are subject to the lowest con- uh, controls. Those are the European Union member states, Canada, Mexico, and states such as and countries such as those. The restrictions for these states are listed in the Commerce Control List, also referred to as the CCL, which are also based on the Commerce Country Chart. In order to see if a CCL controlled item is licensable or if there is a license exception, um, one must first look at the CCL to determine the correct export classification control number. If an export classification control number applies, The next step is to examine the commerce country list to see if the reason for the control on the, I'm going to refer to it as the ECCN, just for brevity's sake, applies to the country of intended export. If the control applies, a license is required, and the product may not be shipped to that country without a license. The countries of the commerce country chart are divided into countries groups A through E. The least restrictive trade is with the countries of country group A, and the most restrictive are with the countries listed in country group E, which is Cuba, Iran, Sudan, and Syria.
0: Okay, so now you can understand why we want to do this in two parts. Even though it sounds like it shouldn't be a big deal, it's obviously a very, very technical and specialized area. We're understanding some of the nuances and what, so a lot of what you hear today will be like getting you familiar with the terms, getting you exposed to the issues, and then hopefully we have some time both this week and next next time when we talk, we're then going to talk about more examples and more case studies. So to try and answer the question of what does it mean to release technology to a foreign national? Because you as a company, as an H-1B employer, as a petitioner that's running a technology company or an insurance company or another company may say, hey, I'm not releasing any technology. The person's just coming and working on some kind of software, what do I care? Well, actually, really another way to ask this is, how does a deemed export occur? From the regulatory standpoint, technology or technical data is considered released for export whenever it is made available to the foreign national for visual inspection such as reading technical specs plans blueprints etc or when technology is released verbally example through a conversation a discussion a teleconference like we're doing right now or when the technology is made available by practice or application under the guidance of a person with knowledge of the technology. So, you know, trying to break it up in a simpler fashion, what does this really mean? A deemed export can occur via providing drawings to the foreign national employee, by having technical conversations or collaborations with the foreign national, the telephone conversations like this, technical training, working with foreign national interns or consultants, collaborations with US customers, foreign national employees, or access to databases that contain control technologies. And the types of deemed exports include design know-how, transfer of the source code, which by the way, I know many of you say we don't transfer source code in software, but you are probably gonna end up inadvertently or inadvertently doing that. A meeting where there is a critical design review, technical training, or manufacturing information. For example, a release would be a tour of a facility that manufactures controlled items, or in the situation of a release of software or source code when you allow a foreign national to visually inspect the source code of the controlled software. So, I mean, all this sounds like, hey, I might do it, but again, I don't release soft code. I don't release encrypted data. I don't do this, I don't do that. So I'm gonna have Aaron maybe try to discuss the issue because if you really look at the form, uh, Form I-129, which you're all, by the way, either you or your HR managers are going to sign under penalty of perjury, it says I have reviewed the EAR and the ITAR regulations and that I'm not releasing technology or technical data to the foreign national. So since the form only mentions technology and technical data, I'm gonna ask Aaron to explain how technology and technical data are different from each other and how they are different from software, from ID services, from ID products, etc.
1: Absolutely. And again, Sheila was pointing out something very, very important. It doesn't mention software or any of the other categories. It merely mentions technology and technical data, which is, as we can see, a little bit complicated even in itself. Technology is specific information that is required for the development, production, or use of items on the CCL, on the Commerce Control List. Technical data, on the other hand, could be blueprints, plans, diagrams, models, formulas, tables, engineering designs, specifications, manuals, and instructions written or recorded on other media uh, devices, such as a disk, tape, or a read-only type of memory. The difference is subtle, but technical data can oftentimes be reduced to some sort of physical media and generally does not contain all of the technology, but a portion of it. This is of course very different from software. Software is one or more programs fixed into a tangible medium or expression like a disk itself.
0: Okay, and, and by the way, I know a lot of this is quite difficult for Many of you, for the first time listeners, to really understand and us because we, this is really honestly the first time I think in years and years of doing a seminar, or teleconference, that I've actually had to go back and look at the source because, again, we don't do export control technology. We do immigration law. You run IT companies. You run insurance companies. You run businesses. You do immigration paperwork. So you're like, whoa, 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 this is a lot of information. There is a lot of data available on federal government websites you can go to the Bureau of Industry and Security website. They have deemed exports FAQs, which are very, very helpful in 10 pages. We can discuss a couple of the hypotheticals that they discuss with us. It's www.bis.gov. Uh, dot uh, we also, and there are also the similar FAQs by uh, other agencies. And clearly we have Donica Wada, who's going to discuss the next issue talk a lot more, I guess, about, and give her contact information as well, because at the end of the day, when you're stumped, we're, uh, we, we go to an outside expert, we would rely on outside experts, and we would trust that if you need to, you would rely on ex- an expert to keep you safe and keep your company safe. Keep in mind, only 2 to 5% of companies actually need an export license, or will need to get this kind of license, from what we understand, by speaking with the appropriate person at the federal government on this issue.
2: That's right Sheila. I think that's uh, important to keep in mind um, in that although the Part 6 to Form I-129 only references uh, technology and technical data um, as for your obligation, um, most I know it has been stated by the uh, controlling government agencies that your Normal export compliance processes and procedures should, should account for any other uh, items that are subject to export regulations.
0: Thank you very much. Yes, and we appreciate that clarification. So I'll tell you what. Now let's come to you, uh, Adonica, since you know you're clearly the in-house expert on the entire issue of the EAR and ITAR. Again, the EAR is the Export Administration Regulation, and ITAR is the International Traffic and Arms Regulation. For those who are not familiar, you will hear the terms EAR and ITAR. So can you explain to our company clients and our company representatives and HR managers and company owners and businesses, what exactly is the EAR and ITAR? Are these new laws? And just so all of you know, by the way, uh, and uh, you know, this issue about complying with export controlled and deemed exports existed the entire time has been existing for decades and decades in the law. The only difference is effective from February 20th, 20th, in less than three weeks from now, it's going to be where you're going to have to check off and sign this document certifying that you have actually read and reviewed EAR and ITAR. You were supposed to have done it before, but now you're promising under penalty of perjury that you will. So, you, so all of us need to really understand what it is, and Adonica, we're going to pass the microphone on to you for you to explain and to, to all of us.
2: Great. Well, what's important to keep in mind in, in uh, this, the, this new revision to Form I-29 is that we are looking at two different regulations. So that means we are looking at two different governmental agencies. Mm-hmm. The EAR, or the Export Administration Regulations, are a set of federal regulations that regulate the export and re-export of most commercial items and specified activities. Mm-hmm. Now, the governmental agency that you'll be dealing with uh, that administers the EAR is the U.S. Department of Commerce, um, and which is uh, actually enforced by the Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, The EAR, the regulations covered what is considered dual use or purely commercial technologies. When we look at the International Traffic in Arms Regulation, or ITAR, that's a set of regulations that control defense-related articles and services that are on the U.S. munitions list, and these are items that are specifically designed or modified for military or space application. Um, these uh, regulations are enforced Specifically, by the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, or the DDTC, uh, which is uh, operates under the Department of State. Now, there, under the ITAR, there are very few exceptions available, and generally, a license is required. Uh, so, what's important to to first make is to make a determination as to whether your controlled your items, your technology, or technical data is controlled under the EAR or the ITAR. Um, and, and so you have to go through a checklist uh, that you can determine whether you need whether you need a license under the EAR or ITAR.
0: Okay, and so the kinds of examples of EAR or ITAR, generally, my understanding is anything ITAR is all like pure military and space, and EAR is more like you just explained the dual use commercial and that most likely most IT consulting companies, software companies, uh, and a lot of businesses most likely, unless they are in the defense field or, and then you get into again the exceptions which sometimes can supersede the rule, um, mo- would probably be subject to the EAR, or
2: ER as you call it? correct. When we're looking at uh, uh, the ITAR, we're really looking at those defense articles that are specifically designed for military use or are on the United States munitions list. Um, Since the ITAR generally has no exceptions or license license exceptions, it is important to keep in mind that if you are a manufacturer or an exporter of ITAR items, you must be registered. That's the first step. You have to first register with the DDTC, and then you make the second step of uh, getting the necessary uh, export
0: license. I see. And so a lot of our company clients are actually doing IT and technology for like the federal government or sometimes governments have often said, well, we can't hire you unless you have a U.S. citizenship or permanent rest in status. And this is probably one of the reasons because otherwise they need to get not just security clearances, but you can't get uh, to export this and can't work on many of these kinds of technologies without getting the the, de-
2: the, the license application, presumably. That's correct. Um, it's, it is important to note, you know, th- since we're dealing with two different types of uh, regulations, uh, the ITAR does not specifically use the phrase deemed export, but it does contain a similar concept. Uh, basically, there's a section within the ITAR that states that an ex- export occurs when technical data is disclosed, again, as you indicated, either through an oral or visual disclosure, or transferred to a foreign person in the United States. So although they don't use that exact term deemed exports, it has the same concept within the regulations. Okay,
0: got it, got it. And I know when we had talked earlier, you had said examples of EAR-controlled items are like semiconductors and telecommunications, high-speed computers manufacturing equipment, encryptions, etc. And as we discussed before, Donica, the revisions to this Form I-129 only requires an affirmative review and certification that the person signing, the employer or the HR manager, that the ER and ITAR have actually been reviewed by that person on behalf of the company, and it has been determined that either a license is not required or that a license is required for the release of such technology or technical data. So can you give us a little bit of background of, you know, when this started? Because I know there was a General government accounting office or GA report of 2002, which really is the reason that this form has been incorporated or these changes have been incorporated in H-1B forms where GO ended up working with, I guess, USCIS and the Department of Commerce to make this to make this change on H-1B petitions. And I say H-1 loosely. Keep in mind, it also applies as I said before, to L1s, to H1s, to H1B1s, and to O petitions. The one exception to L1s that's not clear right now from the regulations of the statute or anything is blanket L1 petitions, because those are filed for those of you who have done blanket petitions for your companies for foreign subsidiaries, branches or affiliate. Those are filed on Form I-129-S. And keep in mind that that even the new version of that form, which is dated... November 23rd of 2010, requires no export control certification, surprisingly. So it's not clear how and if the U.S. CBP or Department of State will try to implement this requirement for the ER and ITAR regulations on an L1 blanket employer, uh, or when they have the person apply for the visa at the consulate, or when the person enters the U.S. Just keep in the back of your mind that this change could occur in the future, because that's an immigration angle that I'm throwing in there, but let's have uh, Adonica come back and sort of go a little bit in, the, in terms of the history of the GAO, so that you can understand why this form, you know, why this actually happened.
2: Right. And as you indicated, back in 2002, the Government Accounting Office, the GAO, uh, was asked to assess the Department of Commerce's efforts to ensure that companies one, are applying for these deemed export licenses when they're required to do so, two, to ensure that they were complying with the license conditions. Now, one of the, you know, the, the, this kind of review had never happened for the Department of Commerce, and one of the key findings in the GAO report was that the Department of Commerce did not, in fact, review all the relevant visa and immigration data. and. As a result, it was concluded that there was a high possibility that they might overlook foreign nationals and the potential to, of those foreign nationals to be subject to deemed export licensing requirements. Um, now, I think what's important with this GAO report is not is twofold: is whether you will get the necessary license, mm-hmm. and importantly, how do you comply with those license conditions? That is where the companies must have export uh, processes and procedures in place to one document that you have done your your um, best practices and that you've you've taken all the necessary steps, you've asked the right questions to determine whether your foreign national employee is mm-hmm. subject to any licensing requirements. But two, to ensure that you have the processes and procedures in place to, to ensure that you are following and in compliance with those license conditions.
0: Well, that you have, to have
2: processes, Right. You have to have processes and procedures in place, and you have to document to, to demonstrate in, in the case that you are ever audited to show that you have taken reasonable care and reasonable steps to, uh, to basically comply with the export laws.
1: So, Adonika, it does sound like it makes sense to have internal processes, review processes in place. Let's say a a company has an internal process in place. They make a determination, hey, no deemed export license, not subject to uh, not working with DOD, none of these ITAR types of rules apply. And then some government agency reviews their situation and says, no, no, you were wrong. Does the fact that they had these internal processes and procedures in place that they went through this math and they just came up with the wrong conclusion, will that help them?
2: Absolutely. That's always viewed as a uh, mitigating circumstance. Uh, you know, in, in our business, and I think in, in your business too, uh, unfortunately bad things happen to good people and good companies. Uh, not everyone is perfect, and uh, that's why we have these processes and procedures in place. And, you know, you have to also test them. So you have to make sure that you take the steps yourself to audit yourself every, you know, perhaps on an annual basis, or if you really do, uh, you know, the focus of your business is hiring foreign nationals and they're uh, uh, being employed by uh, third parties um, in highly technical areas, then perhaps conducting, you know, an audit twice a year is probably, you know, might be more appropriate but you have to ensure that you have the processes in place and that you have, in fact, tested those processes. Okay, okay.
0: So I think it makes sense to kind of, since the focus on the Form I-129 Part 6 focuses specifically on the two terms, technology and technical data. And keep in mind, as we said before, uh, in the information that is released by, actually, there there was some kind of information released by the U.S. Department of Commerce, by the Bureau of Industry and Security about the revised I-129 form and compliance with deemed export rules. Kevin Wolf, the Assistant Secretary for Export, actually explains and tries to put on one page the structure of all US export control laws on one page, and they clearly show physical export, literal physical export that's going on. And then they talk about the I-129, and they call it information, and in that you have technology and technical data which is the only part that we are supposed to, as U.S. employers, are actually checking off, saying, yes, we have looked at the technology and technical data. There's a separate column for software, a separate column for services, and a separate column for transactions. We don't actually get into software services and transactions and physical things. We're just checking off on the I-129 Part 6, the, saying that we have reviewed EAR and ITAR, and we believe that there is no violation with respect to technology and technical data issues. So we think that uh, we will try to get a little bit and try to talk about what type of technology or technical data is controlled and try to distinguish it. Generally, technologies which tend to require licensing for transfer to a foreign national and are considered dual use. What is dual use? Dual use is technology that has both civil and military applications and is subject to one or more control regimes, such as national security, nuclear proliferation, missile technology, or chemical and biological warfare. Now, many of you may even say, whoa, 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 my job has nothing, my software, my programmer, my software engineer is not doing any of this stuff. Why am I even listening to this stuff that sounds so above and beyond my realm of comprehension? Because, if it tends to require licensing for transfer to the foreign national, and there's a possible dual use, which is this use and a peaceful use. It could be stretched where it could... The types of industries which have with controlled technology, as we've said before, includes semiconductor, it includes chemical and materials, it includes electronic components, it includes telecommunications, engineering services, it includes universities research facilities, computers, manufacturing equipment, biotechnology, toxins, viruses, aerospace, defense, and software, particularly encryption and source code kind of things. So you see that even though you may not be involved with national security and nuclear issues and missile, if it has this other dual use, if it's in a control technology field, we're now getting down into that slippery slope area.
2: Right. And I think what's like a great example of a dual use is a like a screw, right? Perhaps the screw is just can going into you're going to export it so that people can build homes or you know um, buildings or whatever. Mm-hmm. But let's just say you are exporting that screw to China, and the end user is is the the military, the Chinese military. Now. That has a dual use because now that that screw can probably be used to be to put, be you know used on uh, military equipment.
0: Exactly. So it's the dual use, both peaceful purposes to build homes for the homeless for your own homes, and it has this possible military use, which is where we get into this entire issue of applying for a license. And because the person, even though the person is physically present in the U.S., the deemed export is because the person is from a different country. We now have this whole deemed export concept because the country of origin or nationality. And as Aaron explained, the different levels of the different nations uh, we then have to apply for that license. So foreign technology with U.S. origin technology when it's co-mingled could also be subject to the EAR and thus requires an export license if it is about the basic, very de minimis levels. This level of technology often determines the license requirement. An article may be seemingly simple and innocent and innocuous and appear to have a purely commercial use as just explained by Ms. Wada, but the advanced technology may make that technology controlled and then licensable. So, I mean, we're just kind of really touched the tip of the iceberg. I know we're close to the 30 minutes at this point and because we're always sensitive to you all as busy companies and owners trying to divide and take a half hour to 40 minutes every week uh, every month. I wish it was every week, but it was once a month, where we can get all of you to analyze and understand the hot, cutting-edge issues dealing with immigration. What we thought is, we actually haven't even gone through half of our presentation that we wanted to go to, through. So that's why we thought that if we end up with shortage of time, we would like to continue discussing the issues next month. And if Ms. Wada can join us, that would be just fantastic. Uh, but we absolutely want to continue the discussion with all of you. But basically. You know, the Export Administration Regulations, or EAR, they define, uh, the definitions distinguish between software and technology. And software is one of the groups within each of the categories of items which are listed on the Commerce Control List, or CCL, as explained by Aaron. Software which is deemed or delineated on the CCL is controlled, and therefore, if it's controlled, you're required to obtain a license. I know I know it's going to be really complicated and difficult, but as Aaron pointed out, setting up internal systems, setting up a process, having someone review it, making sure when you're doing different projects, and a lot of it even in third country client sites and projects, you're going to have both you and the end client the end client user are going to be ultimately responsible because every party, all parties are going to be responsible for compliance with all federal laws and regulations. So let's try to touch upon the issues that we still haven't covered this month and we would like to touch upon next month in the same teleconference series. One is to really go through the types of technology or technical data that are generally not subject to the EAR and ITAR. The the, the definitions of that is what is publicly available, public domain technology, or that information which could be considered to be fundamental research. Another issue that we're going to talk about is uh, if the information or technology is not publicly available, what is the st- next step in finding out if your technology is going to be subject to a license. And then if the license is required, what is the process? How long could this licensure take? Penalties for possible violations of the ER and ITAR. Analyzing the questions on the Form I-129, going through item by item the different scenarios and examples and having hopefully Adonica join us to determine um, and go through what can you as a petitioner, H-1B employer, use on the list to determine if your technology or technical data is subject to a license and are there exceptions to the licensing requirements. So we hope to touch upon all of this and hopefully in the next 30, 40 minutes we'll be actually able to do some of that. Again, I want all of you to remember that nothing really has changed in the law for decades and decades on this issue. The Form I-129, even though it didn't have a separate item checked off in Part 6, it clearly required every H-1B employer uh, the opportunity to, um, sh- to show that they had complied with federal laws and regulations. Um, even though it's a simple form change, the scary part is now we are signing these forms, as I mentioned before, And as I have mentioned repeatedly, that we're signing them under penalty of perjury. And um, we know that the Bureau of Industry and Security is the the entity that provides legal opinions. We are actually getting a legal opinion that we are going to provide for our clients. Every company that works with the Murti Law Firm in filing H-1B petitions uh, will be including a general uh, legal opinion for the use of our companies and our clients the, and we are working with Ms. Wada and her law firm on this issue. Um, and, um, you know, the whole idea is to get you, not that any of us is going to go away with two 30-40 minute sessions becoming world worldwide experts in the EAR and ITAR. But what I would like to do is have Ms. Wada give a little bit of information about her contact in terms of her phone number and e- email. And you're welcome to contact us as well, and we'll be happy to forward that because we are contacting her and we are going to go to outside experts with use, with respect to any understanding because this is not our area of expertise as immigration lawyers, clearly we understand it is not your area of you know, expertise either because all we all do is run law firms or law software companies or run businesses or run insurance companies, etc. Um, and so we had applied to the Bureau of Industry and Security for an advisory opinion. We got something back, which wasn't exciting because, as usual, like good government a- agents, they gave us a very gray area answer, which said everything will depend on the specifics of the case, which basically means they can't give you a generic answer and information. And we knew that all along.
1: They were very committed to being non-committal. Like,
0: <laughs> like, like, all good, like all good uh, government agencies that don't want to get their neck into the hook. So, Ms. Uh, Ms. Wada Donica, let's have you share a little bit of your background. I know I didn't get into details about the law firm. I know I mentioned you're based in San Francisco. Tell us the name of the firm and the website. Um, and, and as we said before, this is all they do is import and export and trade regulations.
2: That's right. Thank you. Um, well, the firm is uh, I work for is Simon, Gluck, and Kane. Um, and if anyone has any questions or, you know, this is really, like, like Sheila said, a lot of information to get your hands around. Um, but my number is 415 or you can uh, reach me on email and that's A-W-A-D-A at customs-law.com and um, you know our firm specializes in uh, import and export laws and uh, it's really you know as with the immigration uh, practice very specialized. And uh, this is uh, just the one area that I know.
0: <laughs> okay. And you know what we could do, and I'm just sort of brainstorming, and I, know I haven't dis- discussed this with anyone. We could probably do, like, similar to the outlines and the documents and all of the summary that we've prepared for this seminar and everything that you've been preparing as well, to do and then give them the links for the different government websites because if somebody within your company, the HR manager, or whoever is doing immigration, wants to at least start to understand these terms a little bit more, so when you do ask... Ms. Wada with questions or do follow up or contact the Bureau of Industrial Security or contact the Department of Commerce, we can at least sound somewhat intelligent in using the correct terminology, the correct words, the correct concepts. And so when you actually get a legal opinion or have Ms. Wada or her law firm investigate, that at least you understand the broad overview of the subject area, which is what we're trying to do in today's teleconference as well. So let's try and wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining and being a part of our teleconference series today. As always, we appreciate, we at the Murthy Law Firm, appreciate the opportunity to work with you. We really look forward to continuing to help you on all of your H1s and green cards and any issues dealing with U.S. immigration law. And when needed, we've always brought in outside top-notch experts to work to help our companies, our clients, our businesses, and anyone that works with the Murthy Law Firm, or the Murthy Law Firm, to be accurate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful rest of the week, and uh, hope stay warm this winter. I know we've had a strange
2: weather. Thanks a million. Aaron?
1: I was just going to say take care.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye.